Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 591 for the 6th of May, 2018. This week, those who create or edit audio but don't need a full digital audio workstation might find that open source Audacity provides all the tools they require. In short circuits, the Windows 10 Spring Creators update is nearly a month late, but Microsoft did start pushing it out this week to users. Those who are still using Windows 7 are substantially increasing their risk from malware, according to Webroot. Calls that begin with, hello, I'm from Windows support, should be terminated immediately. But creeps and crooks use other methods, too. In spare parts, only on the website, it's all artificial intelligence all the time this week. First, how IA can improve on-time performance for metropolitan transit system buses. Then, a new use for AI in identifying and tracking cognitive changes as people age. And finally, a Canadian firm says it can provide waste baskets that, when full, leave the room to empty themselves while replacement waste baskets roll in to take their place. It is springtime in Ohio, and the temperature is just right for open windows. That happens just a few days every year, so the windows are open, and if you occasionally hear some outdoor sounds, it's not your imagination. So let's get on with the podcast here. The TechBiter Worldwide podcast is created with Adobe Audition. Audition, descended from Centrillium Cool Edit Pro, isn't the only audio editor available. And this week we'll take a look at Audacity. Unlike Audition, which runs only on Windows and Mac OS, Audacity is a free audio editor for Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. First, maybe a little background would be helpful. In the early 1990s, when Cool Edit was released, all edits were destructive. Any changes that were made could not be undone later. Hardware, after all, was pretty primitive in those days. When version 2 was released, it did include the ability to perform some non-destructive edits. And then, in 2003, Adobe acquired Centrillium for $16.5 million, and then released Cool Edit Pro as Adobe Audition. Since then, Adobe has rewritten Audition and integrated it into the company's video editing applications. It is now at version 11 and is considered to be a digital audio workstation. Audacity is categorized as a wave editor that places it in a different class of software from Audition. When Audacity starts up, it offers links to documentation and training information, You'll also find a lot of YouTube videos that are devoted to the basics. Audacity supports 32-bit and 64-bit Virtual Studio Technology Audio Effect plugins, VST, but it does not support both simultaneously. Also, it does not support instrument VST plugins or VSTi. There are no dynamic equalizer controls or real-time effects while recording. 
Audacity does not natively import or export WMA, AAC, AC3, or most other proprietary file formats unless the optional FFmpeg library is installed. Although Audacity is a powerful editor, it is not a digital audio workstation, which is a shortcoming that will disappoint old radio guys like me. In fact, my attempt to produce this podcast in Audacity failed, but I did do some of the preliminary editing in Audacity, the kind of things that can be done quite easily in a wave editor, before passing the file off to Audition. It is a powerful application, and it can be used to create podcasts. There are dozens or maybe hundreds of YouTube videos about using Audacity to record, edit, and export podcasts. Although Audacity comes with a surprising number of features for a free application, it doesn't have all the capabilities that Audition offers. Some of the missing features can be added to Audacity with plugins. Some of the plugins are free, others are not. And even if you're an Audition user, it's a good idea to perform an internet search occasionally for VST plugins because Audition also supports them. But today's topic is Audacity, not Audition. Maybe starting with what Audacity isn't makes sense. If you're making a complex recording that needs to be synced across several tracks, it is the wrong tool for the job. If you're creating a basic podcast without a lot of internal elements, it'll do just fine. So although Audacity is free, it's also primitive, more like a 1990s version of CoolEdit. For example, a crossfade in Audacity needs to use two tracks, while in Audition that same task can be performed, I think, a lot easier and using just a single track. The choice mainly comes down to understanding what you need and selecting the right tool for the job. Audacity would be fine for a podcast with a fully produced open and close and then no internal music. The TechBiter podcast uses a produced open, but each week's open does include information about what's coming up. Music tracks are used internally to separate segments, and often the music is heard under parts of the voice track. Some podcast segments have inserted interviews, and the entire podcast has some sound modification processes added. Audacity provides basic audio effects, but they have to be applied destructively. If you change your mind, you can undo an effect immediately, but there's no going back after you've saved a file with changes. Basic editing to eliminate recording errors is easy, and Audacity can record and edit a wide range of audio file formats, including some that Audition can't. So far, it might seem that I'm damning Audacity with faint praise. In fact, it is a highly capable recording application. It can handle 16-bit, 24-bit, and 32-bit floating-point audio files up to 96 kilohertz sample rate. Although Audition can handle sampling rates up to 192,000 kilohertz, Audacity's high end does still exceed that used for audio CDs. As with many open source applications, one of Audacity's main strengths is the fact that it runs on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux, and it looks exactly the same on all three platforms. The interface, while not ugly, does look like something out of Windows XP days, though. Individual tracks can be muted or soloed in Audacity. When a track is soloed, all other tracks are silenced. Controls also exist to raise or lower the overall volume of each track, 
and to pan the output left or right for stereo output. Audacity has a spectrograph display for each channel, but you'll have to choose between waveform and spectrograph. Audition can display both simultaneously in the wave editor. Tracks can be processed to change the sampling rate and bit depth, and tracks can be converted between mono and stereo. A stereo track that has been converted to mono could be converted back to stereo, but all of the channel separation information will, of course, be lost. And actually, I can't think of any reason why anybody would want to do that. Some open-source digital audio workstations exist. We'll give some of them a listen in later programs. Digital audio workstations are generally based on a multi-track tape recorder interface that makes it easy for old guys like me to comprehend what's happening down there. And you'll find transport controls, record, play, fast-forward, rewind, the ability to scrub through a track, mixing controls, a waveform display, and a frequency display. Despite the fact that tracks no longer exist as they did on tape recorders, we still do use the term track, just as we still dial a telephone, even though telephone dials have been gone for decades. Most digital audio workstations support operations on multiple tracks at once, so the user can adjust the overall volume, equalization, and stereo balance track by track. Many digital audio workstations also display something that looks like an analog studio's patch panel, and you'd use that to route the signal through various signal processors for reverb, compression, signal normalization, and things like that. So the bottom line for Audacity, well, it isn't a full digital audio workstation, but it offers a lot of power for a free application, so four cats. Audacity is the perfect choice for simple audio editing, such as editing a single file to remove pauses and errors, and it is sufficient for cutting together a basic podcast. If you need to maintain synchronization across tracks or create a complex podcast, look elsewhere. You'll find additional details on the Audacity website. There is, of course, a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The Windows 10 Spring Creators Update for April arrived on May 2nd. Almost a month late, but a week early, according to Microsoft's second Tuesday of the month patch schedule. The good news is that the update was entirely painless, at least for me. The updater warned that the process might take longer than usual, but it completed in about half an hour. Windows Update showed the pending installation for version 18.03, along with an update for Windows Defender. Following the installation, the control panel's About dialog displayed version 18.03. If you have a notebook computer that's attached to external monitors, you might think the process has stalled. And that's because initially there is no display on the external monitors. If you want to watch, just open the case. Eventually, one of the screens will be activated as the process continues. And then the remainder of the process will be visible on the monitor that you have specified as monitor number one, if you have more than one external monitor. When the process is complete, both internal and external monitors will be active if you have the case open. At this point, you can simply close the case. There's really no need to view the notebook screen unless you want to keep track of the process until the external monitor video is restored. Next week, we'll take a look at some of the new features and some things that have been removed.
If you're still using Windows 7, here's a question for you. Why risk it? Home users have migrated more quickly than business users to Windows 10. By December 2017, almost 72% of home user devices were running Windows 10, and Windows 7 devices dropped to 15% by the end of the year. Windows 8 devices declined to 11%, and devices with Vista and XP were at less than 2%. Webroot says that Windows 7 computers are far more at risk from malware attacks. About 7% of Windows 10 computers used at home had malware installed, according to Webroot. That compares to 16% for computers with Windows 7, 17% for XP computers. Webroot says this means Windows 10 is more than twice as safe as Windows 7 for home user devices. Businesses are continuing to adopt Windows 10, but at a considerably slower pace than home users. About 32% of office computers were running Windows 10 by the end of 2017, but Windows 7 was still being used by 54% of computers. Windows 8 devices declined to 4%, in part because that operating system never had much business acceptance anyway and devices with Vista or XP were, as with home devices, less than 2%. Webroot says that while fewer malware files were seen in 2017 than 2016, the numbers are more striking when related to the operating system. Only 15% of the total files determined to be malware were on Windows 10 systems, and 63% were found on Windows 7 systems. The report says, and I quote, the OS migration rate for enterprises has been quite slow. Webroot saw only 32% of corporate devices running Windows 10 by the end of 2017. Although the cost in terms of hours and level of effort may contribute to the enterprise's slower migration rates, their exposure to risk grows with each passing day. That's from Webroot. If you'd like to see the full report, it's on the Webroot website. There is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. We're still getting calls that claim to be from Windows support. No matter how many times it's said or how many people say it, the message simply seems not to get through. And this is the message. Microsoft technicians do not call Windows users unless the user has explicitly requested a call and has scheduled it in advance. But still people fall for the scam and hand over credentials or allow an unknown technician to install malware on their computers. Why? Any call that begins with, I'm from Windows support, should be terminated immediately, even if you're expecting a call from Microsoft. That's because a Microsoft technician won't claim to be calling from Windows support, but explicitly from Microsoft. No matter who it is that a support caller claims to be calling from, the call should be treated with extreme suspicion. That includes anyone who claims to be from Microsoft support, Windows support, your ISP's support department, your email provider, Google, Facebook, Apple, or any other unexpected caller that says there's a problem with your computer, phone, tablet, or any other device. The problem seems to be worsening. 
Microsoft says that support scam reports have increased by 24% over the previous year. Microsoft Windows Defender Research Project Manager Eric Wallstrom says customer support services received 153,000 reports from customers who encountered or fell victim to tech support scams in 2017. The reports came from 183 countries. And it's not always phone calls that initiate the scammer's contact. Microsoft blog says that scam websites use various tactics to attract attention and then lead potential victims to poisoned locations. Email campaigns use phishing-like techniques to try to trick recipients into clicking URLs or opening malicious attachments. Malware can make system changes and display fake error messages. Unsolicited phone calls pretend to be from a vendor's support team. Once they're in, scammers can make changes to the device or point out some common non-critical errors and present these as problems. The Microsoft blog cites an example of scammers who use the Event Viewer to show errors or Netstat to show connections to foreign IP addresses. Once they've convinced the user and have control of the computer or other device, then they can pressure the victim to pay. Wallstrom says it's time to shut the scammers down. Beyond customer education, the scale and complexity of tech support scams require cooperation and broad participation across the industry, he says. The Microsoft Digital Crimes Unit works with law enforcement and other agencies to crack down on scammers. And Microsoft has established partnerships with the objective of stifling crooks. Some of those partnerships? Web hosting providers. They can take down verified tech support scam websites. Telecom networks. They can block tech support scam phone numbers. Browser developers. They can continuously thwart tech support scam tactics and block tech support scam websites. Antivirus solutions, they can detect tech support scam malware. Financial networks, they can help protect customers from fraudulent transactions. And of course, law enforcement agencies, they're the ones who can actually go after the crooks. But no matter what Microsoft or any other company does, it's up to us to be skeptical. And that's the thing that makes us safer. Well, there aren't any safety concerns about spare parts. It's only on the website. This week, it's all artificial intelligence, all the time. First, how AI can improve on-time performance for metropolitan transit system buses. Then, a new use for AI in identifying and tracking cognitive changes as people age. And finally, a Canadian firm says it can provide wastebaskets that, when full, leave the room to empty themselves while replacement wastebaskets roll in and take their place. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.